John chapter 17. John 17. We are continuing our series of messages on the Gospel of John, and we've made our way to the prayer of Jesus. We looked at the first part of the prayer of Jesus in the first eight verses last week, where we learned that the foundation for what Jesus prays for us is the glory of God. And what we discovered is that when we glorify God, we do what we were made to do. When we glorify God and live for His praise, we're unlocking God's design for our lives. The passage we're going to look at this morning as Jesus continues this prayer is going to begin to turn his attention to what he's praying over us. To be sure, he's praying for the 12 disciples, but by extension, he's also praying for you and for me. And here's what Jesus is going to start with. He's going to start by telling us that he's got some good news for us, but that he also has some bad news. I'm curious, how many of you have ever heard someone say, I've got some good news, but I've got some bad news? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that saying. Jesus is saying to us this morning, I've got some really good news for you, but I've also got some challenging news. I want to show you this in John chapter 17, starting in verse 9. Would you please stand to your feet with us as we honor the reading of God's word? John 17, verse 9, we read these words. I am praying for them. Speaking of the disciples, Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Please pray with me. Father, We ask now that your word would come alive to us. You tell us that your word is living 
and active. And God, we pray that you would speak to every mind and heart here in this room. Lord, there's a lot going on this morning, detail-wise. I just pray that your hand of blessing would be on every single part of that. And most importantly, Lord, I pray that as we hear your word, you would open our minds, not just to hear it, but also to do your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Jesus starts by giving us some good news, and he gives us some bad news. Here's the good news Jesus offers us. He tells us that if we know Christ as our Savior, we are His. Jesus says, all that you've given me, Father, are mine and yours. We are guarded by the protection of the triune God. He even goes so far as to say that because that's the case, we glorify the Son. We live for His praise and honor. That's the good news. We can do what God made us to do. But here's the challenging news. Look back in your Bibles at verse 11. Here's the challenge that Jesus puts in front of us. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Jesus says that though we've been saved by his grace out of the world, in one sense, though Jesus is returning to the Father, you and I are staying here. And the reason Jesus is praying over you and I, the disciples and by extension us, is because we're living as Christians in hostile territory. You see, when you become a Christian, when you place your faith in Jesus, God gives you a new identity. He gives you citizenship in a new kingdom. And the problem is, Jesus' kingdom oftentimes conflicts and, and butts up against the kingdoms of this world. So imagine with me for a moment a young man about my age in the country of Syria. Syria are parts of the Middle East. Imagine one evening at dinner, this young man decides to announce to his friends that he's decided to try to petition to get citizenship in the United States of America. How do you think a Muslim living in a country that perceives America as hostile, how do you think his friends would receive that declaration? And what would happen if some time passes by and this Muslim man, by some really strange occurrence, receives American citizenship. He receives identity as a part of this country that Syria and Iraq, they perceive as hostile. And he runs into the mosque and he begins to shout to everyone that he's become a citizen of this foreign country. How would people respond to him? Okay, they'd shoot him. Thank you, David. Audience participation time. They would not be happy. And the reason they would not be happy is because he has aligned himself with a kingdom that is hostile, at least in their perception, to his own. Now here's what I want you to see. 
when you become a Christian, you receive a citizenship that is hostile to the world around you. What do you mean, Spencer? How, how can our heavenly citizenship and following Jesus put us at, at odds with our culture? Let me give you a few examples. When we as a church stand up and say that we don't think you should be able to do whatever you want to with your body, that we don't think women, especially with unborn life in their womb, should be able to do whatever they want, that butts up against the culture. When we stand up and say, as another example, that we believe intimacy, sexual intimacy should happen in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman, that butts up against the culture. There's a resistance to that kind of reality. The reason we believe those things is not because we like being controversial. The reason we believe those things is not because we're traditional or have homespun American good old common values. The reason we believe those things is because we're citizens of another kingdom. And because we're citizens of another kingdom, we oftentimes clash with the world in which we live. So here's the point that I think this passage puts in front of us. In light of the fact that we live as citizens of another country in a hostile territory, in order to do what we were made to do, glorify God, we desperately need God. In order for you and I, in a world that's hostile around us, to live for His praise and honor, we need God's help. Now, the reason that's important is because it may have been easy for someone to read the first eight verses of this prayer and think, okay, great, I'm supposed to glorify God, and I kind of live my life and do my own thing. I need God's help when I first come to Him, but I kind of got it after that. And Jesus says, no, you don't only need God when you first come to Him and receive Him as Savior, you need God every single day following that. So here's what this passage is going to show us this morning. This passage is going to show three actions, three kinds of help that you and I need from God if we're going to glorify Him and live for His praise, okay? I want to show you these in this passage. Number one, the first thing we need from God is God's preserving care. We need God to preserve us. Look at verse 11 with me for how he unpacks this. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus says and prays for the disciples, the twelve, by extension you and me, that God would preserve or keep them in his name. And what that doesn't mean is that we simply remember the names of God throughout the Bible. When Jesus talks about God's name here, he's talking about the very heart of God, that that Jesus would keep us connected to God's heart. Okay? Here's how this happens. When you and I come to Christ... The Holy Spirit 
establishes a connection between Jesus and every follower of his. There's a connection that's established. And here's how the connection works. What's happened to Jesus physically, death, burial, and resurrection, happens to every follower of Jesus spiritually, death, burial, and resurrection. This is called union with Christ. So that when I come to know Jesus, it's because I'm dying to myself and I'm raised again to a whole new life, a new identity that I have in Jesus. And what Jesus is praying over us is the promise that God would not only save us from danger, but that he would keep us in his grace. See, here's what's so great about God and about what he offers you and me. He doesn't offer just protection from danger. He offers eternal safety and protection. This is why we believe that you cannot lose your salvation because grace is not just me reaching up to God in faith, though I do that. Grace is also God reaching down to me and never letting go. The analogy that Jesus uses in John 15 is of the vine and the branches. Jesus talks about this mental picture as a vine and branches. In this analogy, every single one of us who are followers of Jesus are branches and we're connected to the vine. The vine is what gives life to each individual branch. And what Jesus is praying for me and for you is that God would preserve us, God would keep us connected to that vine. Essentially, what Jesus is doing is this. He's reminding us of the promise God has made to never leave us or forsake us. Now, here's what's cool about this passage. Jesus gives us two results that should be apparent in our lives if the preserving work of God is happening. Two quick results that come from the preserving work that God does in our lives. Look back at verse 12 to see the first one. Excuse me, verse 11. Verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Here it is. So that they may be one, even as we are one. The first mark of the preserving work of God is unity among fellow believers. Here's what Paul, here's what Jesus is saying as John records him. If Christ is what we're connecting to as the vine, because he's what we're connecting to, that should affect our relationships with other people. So here's how this works. Jesus not only makes it possible that my relationship with God becomes a reality, he begins to change how I relate to other people as well. There's a vertical 
component to grace, but there's also a horizontal component as well. So here's what happens. Because Christ is what I'm connected to, Jesus becomes the center and focus of every relationship I have with other people. And the reason unity can happen, even the kind of unity he talks about here that God himself has, it happens when there is no other agenda but Jesus. Real unity happens. It emerges not by focusing on unity. You don't get unity by focusing on unity for unity's sake. You get unity when you make Jesus the center of your relationships with other people. I hear stories sometimes about churches dividing or splitting over issues that are petty or not really substantive. I heard about a church one time that split over the color of the carpet in their sanctuary. And there was one group in the church that wanted green carpet and another group in the church that wanted purple carpet. Why you'd ever want purple carpet, I have no idea. But they were warring against one another. And it got so contentious, it got so mean-spirited that they said, we're disbanding the church, and they walked away. And here's what I want you to know. What you're seeing in that church is not strong differences of taste and fashion. What you're seeing is that there are multiple agendas and none of them are Jesus. You're seeing agendas, kingdoms that people are trying to build, but the problem is it's not Christ's kingdom. Let me give you a practical way to think about this. One of the signs that Jesus is the center of your relationships with other people is you're more concerned with their holiness than you are with their happiness. So when I really embraced Christ-centered influence and relationships with others, I'm more concerned about the state of your soul than I am about how much you like me or what I get from you. So let me ask you a, a point of application, just a question to get the wheels turning. What do your relationships reveal about the focus of your life? What, what do the relationships you have at work or at home uncover about the preserving work of God in your life? Are you more concerned in your relationships about people's happiness than their holiness? This is true even if you're thinking of people that don't know Christ as Savior. Even if you're thinking of people that don't know Jesus. They're, not, they're lost. They're not believers. Christ, you, you can still make Christ the center of that relationship because you're trying to point them to Christ. You're trying to invest your life into them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first result, is that there should be a unity that flows out of the preserving work God does of connecting us to the vine. The second word 
that Jesus uses to describe a result that should come is the word joy. After mentioning that he had guarded all the disciples except Judas, who had disobeyed to fulfill Scripture, he he says in verse 13, look in your Bibles, verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, here it is, my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now what is joy? Joy is pleasure from a gratitude for grace. I would define joy as a a pleasure, a vitality to your life that flows from a thankfulness for Jesus. The truth is that the joy Jesus talks about here is not just any kind of joy. I hope you noticed that in your Bibles. Notice what kind of joy it is. It's the joy Jesus provides. It's my joy, Jesus calls it. You see, joy is the ability to remember how thankful you are for grace and to be thankful even in the midst of difficult circumstance. Think of it this way. Joy is like winning the lottery a million bucks. Somebody wins the lottery and has a million dollars in their bank account. And joy is the ability to remember you've won the lottery when somebody hands you a plumbing bill for $213. You see, we're handed disappointment, unexpected circumstances, unmet expectations all day. And joy is the ability in the midst of receiving those things to remember, I've won the spiritual lottery. (laughs) I have a grace that not only saves me, but that keeps me and will never let me go. You're going to be handed bills, difficulty, discouragement, worry throughout your day. And real joy happens when in the midst of those things I can go, but you know what? I've been given Jesus Christ and he's more than I will ever need. So let me ask you as we apply this to our lives together. Are you able to be thankful for grace in the midst of disappointment? Maybe some of you this morning, today, are going through disappointment or discouragement. Some of you might even be dealing with physical pain in your body. Is there a joy, a a vitality, a pleasure that comes into your life, not from your circumstances, but that comes from knowing that you're the beloved, that you're redeemed by God's grace? Jesus says, if we're going to glorify him, we need God and we need him first to preserve us. Second, 
Jesus says we also need God to protect us. To protect us. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now here's the key ask. Watch this, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus gives a progression here. He says, because the disciples have received the word, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they're no longer of the world. The world is no longer their home. Their primary identity is in Christ. And because of that, they've clashed with the culture in which they lived. The Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Herodians, anyone who had a stake in the power structure of Jesus' day hated Jesus. They hated his disciples. And the reason they did is because Jesus threatened their power. But Jesus takes this kind of persecution idea and he he intensifies it by reminding us that the most dangerous one we face is not the people of this world who may disagree with us or may persecute Christians. No, the most dangerous force we face in this world is what he describes as in verse 15, the evil one. I believe this is a reference to the devil and the forces of the enemy. Spiritual warfare is real. The devil and demonic forces are at work in this world. But there's a couple important things we need to remember. Number one, the devil is not God's opposite. Sometimes we get this mistaken notion that here's God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and then here's the devil, and he's equally all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. And that's not true. God is God, and he alone is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. The devil, on the other hand, and his forces are created beings who are in one place at a time. That's the first thing we need to remember about the devil. The second thing that I would remind you of is that the devil and his forces have been defeated. <laughs> they, they have uh, a defeated, they have a, a task for which they're going to fail. Well, how do we know that? Because Jesus goes to the cross He dies for your sin and my sin, and he rises again. And when he rises again, the Bible says he put to open shame the forces who have opposed him. But while these forces have been defeated, they are still actively at work in the world. And they are trying everything they can to subvert God's plans and God's purposes. 
The enemy can physically harm you through means in this world, but you need to remember the enemy cannot sever you from Christ, from that vine. The enemy in no way can jeopardize your salvation. The most poignant strategy I believe the enemy has today, especially here, is to distract us and discourage us. One of the things that keeps me up at night often is watching people who claim to be Christians trade the benefits of their heavenly citizenship for the American dream. The truth is that what we've been given in Jesus Christ is greater, higher, better, throw in any word you want to throw in there, than what this world can offer you or offer me. So here's the point. What Jesus says here in verse 15 is not that we would be removed from danger. Look back at your Bibles. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. It's not removal but that you keep them from the evil one. What he doesn't promise us is removal from danger. What Jesus promises you and me as followers of him is protection and sustaining through danger. Jesus never promises that I will always have it easy and comfortable as he removes me from danger. This is why some of the TV preachers are so deadly, dangerous, I will call them heretical, because they're preaching a gospel that says, if you believe in Jesus, all of your problems will go away. It's not the gospel. Jesus did not promise removal. He promised to sustain us through and in the midst of difficulty and danger. Now, here's the point I would make to you about this protection. Our expectations of God must mirror God's promise. My expectations of God should be connected to the promises of God. If my expectation is I'm always going to be removed from danger, I'm always going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. If that's what I expect from this life, I'm not connecting myself to the promises of God. And if my expectations are not found in God's promises, I will constantly be bitter, angry, and at some point apathetic about who he is. If, on the other hand, I connect my expectations to God's promise it appropriately prepares me to live the life God's called me to live. So think about it this way. Imagine a Navy SEAL. Navy SEALs are some of the best trained, highly uh, prepared and equipped military people in the world. And this Navy SEAL, this group of SEALs, they get an order to go into a hostile territory and to recover and retrieve some hostages. And in this set of orders, the order is to go in very covertly, rescue these people, and take them to an extraction point where they can be rescued and brought home to safety. 
And so the seals do their due diligence. They prepare. And they fly into this hostile country to retrieve these hostages. But in the midst of retrieving them and bringing them out, they get a radio message. And the radio message is this. We can no longer deliver you from safety. You are going to have to do your best to protect these hostages for the next 24 hours. The extraction point has been compromised. Well, in that moment, these Navy SEALs have an important decision to make. They've got to shift their thinking from, I'm running so that I can be retrieved, to, I've got to start thinking about how I'm going to protect these people. Now, here's my point. Listen very carefully. I believe many Christians are focused always on extraction points when God has not promised us that. God has not promised us a quick, easy extraction from every problem that we face. What God has promised is to sustain you through those difficulties. This is hard for me personally, right? Because when we face pain, difficulty, discouragement, can I tell you what my first gut reaction is to pray? God, get me out of this mess. God, remove me from this problem. I don't like this. And oftentimes it takes me a little while to remember that God didn't promise me removal from problems. He promised that his grace is sufficient. And even in difficulty and pain, God can use that for my good and for his glory. Here's what we need to remember, sweet people. It is oftentimes only through difficulty, pain, discouragement that we learn from God what we need to learn. I would love to tell you that I've learned some really great things from God in comfort and ease, but that's just not the truth. Most of the time, when I learn the most from God, it's when he reminds me through circumstances how desperate I am for him. Because the truth is, sweet people, I always need God. Sometimes he has to bring me through something to remind me of that. So let me ask you a question. How are you viewing pain and discouragement and danger today? How how are you viewing pain and discomfort in your life? Part of the reason we need to be careful in how we think about this is because Jesus makes it clear, both in verse 14 and verse 16, we're not of the world. We will face discouragement and disappointments in this life. The question is not whether we're going to face it. The question is this, how are we going to respond? We need God's help to glorify him. And one of the ways we ask for God's help is through his protection. Thirdly and finally, we see in this text that God promises also to purify us. 
to purify us. Look at verse 17 in your Bibles. Jesus asks the Father to sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prays for the disciples and by extension you and me that God would sanctify us. This is the picture of God cleansing us from the inside out. That he's working in us to change us and to transform us. Here specifically, he talks about the role, the words of Jesus, and by extension the Bible, has in changing us. And he helps us see this by how he describes the word. Did you notice that in verse 17? He puts an equal sign between the words word and truth. Your word is truth. Now the word truth means a real state of affairs. Another way of saying that is it means reality. The word of God connects us to reality. The Bible is the tool God uses to open our eyes to see things as they really, really are. Uh, One of the series of videos that goes around Facebook that I love is the video that shows um, an infant or a small child who has hearing loss. And it's very common for children to go through that. And and now with medical advances, they're able to put an implant, right, in a child's ear so that they can hear. And these videos that go around Facebook that are so incredibly beautiful show an infant, a small child, as they turn on the device so that they can hear for the first time. How many of you have seen those videos? Many of you have. And it's so beautiful Because for the first time, this child begins to listen to the voice of his mother. And and when they can hear for the first time, this beautiful smile (laughs) comes all over their face. And it's like, for the first time, they're hearing things as they really are. And every time I watch that, I think, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Because you and I, before Jesus, are blind and deaf, spiritually speaking. We're running our own way. We're doing our own thing. We're following sin and what we think it's going to get us. And we can't see or understand that it's going to destroy us. And the word of God is presented to us that shows us, actually, you're going the wrong way way. Turn around. You're going the wrong direction. These things are going to destroy you. Because you're blind and deaf, you lie. You steal. You disobey your parents. You worship and bow down to false gods. We could keep going. But you do all of these things because you're blind. And what the Bible confronts us with is that because of that, we deserve a sentence of death. And the beautiful news that we can smile about 
is that though you and I deserve that, Jesus took our place. The song that we sang a moment ago said, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. That's what I should have gotten. That's what you should have gotten. And the word of God confronts us and shows us that the only way out is to turn around, is to do an about face, a 180, to repent and trust Jesus. It is trust in Jesus that connects us to the vine. That's how we get the life and the forgiveness for our sins that we so desperately need. What's powerful about this is this ultimate truth that God opens our eyes to see, opens our ears to hear, is not meant to just have us sit back and watch the world go by. This truth is meant to send us out. Look at verse 18. He says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says he consecrates himself. That's a reference to his death for you and for me. That because he's given us his word and that word gives us the gospel that Jesus died for us in the same way that the father sent the son to preach grace and truth, to offer his life as a sacrifice, Jesus now sends us. He sends us to go into the world to preach grace and truth to offer our lives in a similar way as a sacrifice as we die to ourselves in service to our God of others. The word of God is meant to send us to the world. The word in its work of sanctifying us is not meant to have us sit back and just watch as the world passes us by. The world's sanctifying work is meant to send us with the good news to the world. One of the reasons you should come back tonight at 6 p.m. is to hear about some of the work going on around the world for the sake of the gospel. One of the famous people from church history who I think exemplifies this principle is a man named William Carey. William Carey was a Baptist, an English Baptist living in the 1700s. And he was living and pastoring at a time when people were not sending missionaries and people to the farthest reaches of the globe because they thought, well, if God wants to save people, who are we to get in the way? God will take care of it. And so they used that as an excuse to just kind of sit back and watch the world pass them by. Well, William Carey began to study the Bible. And as he began to study the Bible, the verses that he could not get over were Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And it finishes with a promise. And behold... I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
And here's what happened to William Carey. He said, wait a minute. If the promise at the end is still good today for us, why isn't the command? Pretty decent logic, right? If the promise that he's never going to leave us or forsake it, if we claim that, how can we not simultaneously claim and obey the command to go and make disciples? And so that's what he did. He started the modern missions movement. The missionary movement as we know it today, especially in our part of the world, in a lot of ways traces its origin back to William Carey. Because from this study and from some books that he wrote, he formed a society for missions with another gentleman named Andrew Fuller. Some of you may know Fuller. And he and Fuller and others went to some of the darkest, most difficult places like India and Burma, many of them dying there in those countries for the gospel. And as William Carey went out, here was the banner that went over the modern missions movement, and I believe it's something we need to reclaim today. Carey said, based on his study of Scripture, we must expect great things from God, and we must attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Why? Because he's promised never to leave us or forsake us. He's promised not just to save us, but to keep us. He's promised to protect and purify us. We should expect great things from him. But that expectation should lead to attempting great things for God. That we begin to lay our lives down for the gospel. To see it spread throughout the world. What this passage tells us is that if we're going to live for God's glory, we desperately need God's preserving, protecting, and purifying work. Let me ask you as we close this simple question, if the word of God is meant to send us out, let me ask you this. Who are the people you're actively praying for to come to Christ? Who are the people knowing the truth, knowing that without Christ people will spend an eternity under the wrath of God in hell? Knowing that, our eyes have been opened, our ears unplugged to that truth. Knowing those things, who are we praying for actively, daily to know Jesus? Remember this, sweet people. In many situations, you are God's plan to get people in your workplace, people in the place that you live, people in your family. You are the plan God has to get these people the gospel. God has no plan B. You are his plan. Who are those people that you're actively praying for chances, opportunities to share with? And who are the people you're praying for that God would open their eyes so they can see their need for Christ? The reality is, if we're going to be a people that glorify God in this way, we need God to preserve, to protect, and to purify us. Would you please 
Pray with me, church. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Arel is going to continue to translate this portion of our time together.